This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We have an interview today, and I will tell you how this came about, because it was one of those things that was serendipitous and delightful and filled me with squealing happiness. Uh, so back in the fall of last year, so 2015, there was a book that arrived at my desk. And this is nothing new, because we are often sent books by publishers for review uh, as possible interview subjects. But this book was a little bit different. Uh, one, it is huge. It was like a massive box that came. And two, once I opened this parcel, which was quite heavy... I saw the book within and then it was this incredible book of historical fashion plates. It's titled Fashion Plates, 150 Years of Style. And the writer, April Callahan, is a fashion historian and a special collections associate at the Fashion Institute of Technology. So she really knows her stuff. And so I opened this book and I started to page through it and I just fell in love with it. I found it utterly enchanting because not only is it pictures of historical clothing, which everyone knows I love, but this is so gorgeous. And we talk about it a little bit in the interview coming up, but like the, the printing on it is absolutely exquisite. It is like just a fine art book. It's really, really gorgeous. Uh, and it is so pretty that other House of Work staffers started kind of wandering over to my desk to see what I was gasping over. And then they started gasping. Um, and Julie Douglas and I stood there for a long time paging through this thing and just being amazed at how absolutely gorgeous it is and how much really cool information is contained in it. And so, of course, uh, I, as soon as I was able to tear myself away from it, I shot off an email to ask if April would join us on the show. And then when she responded, uh, she surprised me a little by mentioning that she had also just published another book, which is titled Fashion and the Art of Pochoir, The Golden Age of Illustration in Paris. Uh, so I was like, great, we'll talk about both of those books. So for those of you who are into historical fashion or even simply art, you are going to be delighted to hear her insights on both clothing and culture, uh, as well as art throughout history. And she's incredibly well-spoken, and she shares some really great insights. First up, this talk covers just exactly how somebody becomes a fashion historian, which a lot of listeners have expressed to us as their dream job. And how having a job at the Fashion Institute of Technology leads to some really exciting moments. Now that I am lucky enough to have April Callahan on the line for an interview, uh, we're going to get right to talking about some of the amazing work she has been doing. And right out of the gate, I will tell you that one of the things I love in your Fashion Plates book, the dedication says this book is dedicated to those people who know what they love to do but haven't quite found their way. Be fearless. It seems like you have clearly found what you love to do. Uh, so before we start talking about the books and historical fashion, can you just tell us kind of what drew you to historical fashion in the first place and how you managed to make this into a career? Sure. Yes. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really delighted to be on the show. I'm actually a fan, so it's a great compliment. Um, yeah. So kind of how I ended up where I am here is um, from a very, very young age, I, I always was really drawn to and interested in the kind of hidden story behind objects. Um, who created them? Why? Who, who owned them? How, 
what do those objects mean to their owners and how does that kind of speak to a creation of not only like an individual, but also a cultural identity? Um, and my interest in that kind of led me to study art history. Um, and I did an undergraduate degree in art history. And then after I graduated, I ended up working in contemporary art foundations and galleries as an assistant director for almost 10 years. But some point along the way there, I started to get a little bit of an itch to explore some other interests, but I wasn't certain what those interests were yet. And one day I just happened to stumble across a book that kind of changed the course of my life professionally from that point forward. And it was the catalog to the Kyoto Costume Institute. Um, so it's a costume collection in Kyoto, Japan. And the book is published by Tashin. It's pretty widely available. <laughs> but <laughs> I have to laugh I, because I have and adore that book. It's, so, it's really great. So right? I understand how it was life changing because it's really yeah, amazing. I mean, I devoured their presentation of the history of fashion from the 18th to the 20th century in in like a 24 hour period. Um, and from that point forward, I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I applied to graduate program here in New York um, in fashion and textile curatorial studies. So really, until I encountered that book, I, I didn't realize that one could actually study fashion, that the field of fashion studies existed, and that one you could really use an object-based approach to analyze the motives and really even the technologies of a society that, that created the objects. That's so cool. And like I said, I love that book, so I really do completely understand how it, it oh, shifted good. everything. Oh, good. Yeah, fantastic. I've uh, given that book as a gift to so many people. Well, and I actually received it as a gift, so it's perfect. <laughs> to me, that is like a perfect gift book. And now you work in special collections at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Uh, so do you ever stumble across any fabulous fashion surprises? And how specifically did you end up there? Um, well, actually, how I ended up here was I did go to graduate school here at FIT. Um, I went back for a little while to working um, in art here in New York. And as I started working on these books, um, I was delving into this collection specifically a lot. And so I was hanging around a lot. And eventually they asked me if I'd want to come on board. <laughs> so, um, but um, in terms of of finding really fun things within the collection. Yes, this happens frequently. Um, it, our collection here at FIT is really quite robust. We have about 3,500 linear feet of rare books and periodicals specifically on the topics of fashion and design. And we also have more than 350 manuscript collections. And when I say manuscript collections, I mean um, unpublished materials. So in the context of the types of things that we collect, that really means designer archives. And within our paper designer archives, we estimate we have about a half of a million original works on paper, most of which are designer sketches. So one of my most serendipitous surprises that I've had recently kind of pertains to these sketch collections. And um, a few months ago, I had posted on our Instagram feed a photograph of this really beautiful evening dress by the couturier Lucille. And I had found the uh, photograph in a 1917 issue of the French fashion magazine Les Modes, which is one of the rare periodicals that we have here. But the following week, I just happened to be leading a class visit with graduate students, and I had randomly gone back in the collections room and pulled a box of sketches from the many, many boxes of Luskiel sketches that we have. I opened the box in front of the graduate students. The first 
sketch I turned to just happened to be the original sketch for the dress that I had posted on Instagram the week before. Oh my goodness. What, what are the chances (laughs) of that happening? (laughs) And that's really kind of something that speaks to the the vast and the scope um, of, of what we have here. Oh, that's spectacular. I would imagine that's one of those things where sometimes you have to make yourself leave at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, because it's a I, constant I learn something treasure every single day when I come to work. Oh, I love it. It's like a treasure hunt all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that always pays off, it seems. Um, so you have two books out right now that are, are fresh releases, both about, uh, fashion history and specifically fashion illustration. So since mm-hmm. they came out like one right after the other, I mean, it's only a couple of weeks that separated their publication dates. Um, did you work on those concurrently or did you have to kind of silo it and do one and then the other? I actually did not work on them concurrently. Um, I pretty much wrote them back to back, but it just happened to be an odd twist of fate that they ended up coming out at, at the same time. I wish I was that much of a powerhouse of a writer to be able to do to work on two books at the same time, but I am not. So when you're working on a book like this, which uh, here's where it really gets to be a little powerhousey in my head. Uh, writing, of course, takes a lot of work, but to me, sifting through source material and the, the mm-hmm. rich source material you had for each of these, uh, mm-hmm. is a huge task. And so when you're compiling books like this, when you're curating collections, uh, what is that process like? Like, how do you start? Where do you, do you have a vision when you begin and does it stay the same or how much does it evolve as you go? And like, how long does it really take you to kind of create a cohesive assortment and cull the ones that don't quite fit and go through that whole process? Mm-hmm. Um, well, since I really am like quite literally physically immersed in the materials every day when I come to work, um, for me, it's just kind of more about living with the materials at hand for a while and then starting to see where there is an abundance of subject matter that coincides with a gap in whatever the current publishing or scholarship that's happening is. And then once you make that connection, it's really about just diving into the original primary source materials from the period and then letting the materials tell you their story. Um, Everyone has their own way of working, of course, but personally, I photograph obsessively. And one would think that this is kind of a simple proposition, but when you are working with a large amount of historic materials within a really massive collection, just having a simple image on your screen or on your page really isn't enough information for you to work from. Um, You have to record all of its metadata. And what I mean by that is, you know, what publication is it from? What was the date? Who is the artist? Who is the photographer? Um, And on a lot of this is in order to be an effective researcher later, when you go back to evaluate your pool of images that you start with, first of all, you need to know where to be return to in order to relocate that image again after you've been doing research. Um, And this is really super important when you have a pool of, say, 6,000 images that you start with, which is essentially what I began with when I started image selection for the Fashion Plates book. So we we called that down from 6,000 to 200. That seems like it would be terribly painful. (laughs) (laughs) There Um, are moments, I'm not going to lie. Where it is very pretty heartbreaking when you have to cut something that you love. 
Well, and that's my next question. Are you good about killing your darlings and cutting those things that you just are in love with, but they maybe aren't the right fit and kind of admitting that to yourself? Or is it like a, did you ever find yourself in the back of your head knowing what the right decision was, but still holding on to something that maybe you just were really attached to? You know, I think I become better about it. <laughs> um, and I think when I went into the second book, um, I had a better, clearly defined set of parameters that we agreed upon um, before we started working with our image pool. Um, and those parameters first being that specific image's ability to advance forward the story that we're trying to weave together by putting the images together. And then once we kind of have an idea of what we want and, and also how those things, you know, work visually together, copyright. We have to consider oh. copyright. So with the type of books that I do, um, which are considered illustrated books, this can really be a defining factor in which images ultimately appear. So for instance, uh, for Fashion and the Art of Peshawar, which I wrote with my fantastic co-author, Cassidy Zachary, um, one of our very, very favorite illustrators of this entire time period, his name um, was Andre Edouard Marti, and his work has not transitioned into the public domain. And because um, the more of his work that we wanted to use, we were going to have to pay um, use fees for due to budget constraints. We could not include as many of his illustrations in the books as we would have liked. Was that ever freeing to be like, the universe is deciding this for me. I don't have to make this cut. <laughs> and it's freeing as much as it was painful at other times. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine having to cull a collection of gorgeous fashion plates down without going slightly mad or becoming really melancholy in the process. So it was good to hear from someone that has done that, uh, how she sort of handled it. I know I get way too attached to things that I think are beautiful to ever really be able to do that with any sort of grace. We are going to hear more from April about her book on Pochoir, and she's going to describe exactly what that is. In just a moment. But first, we will have a word from one of the fabulous sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History Class on the air. All righty, as promised. Tracy, do you want to know what Pochoir is? I do, in fact. All right, let's do it. So you brought up your book about Pochoir. So I want, mm -hmm. wanted to ask you if you would explain for our listeners what Pochoir actually is. Certainly. Of course, I'd be happy to. Um, so pochoir literally is the French word for stencil. Um, and stenciling as an image-making technique has, has existed for thousands of years. Um, we see it employed in prehistoric cave paintings. Many millennia later in the Middle Ages, um, oftentimes people who did not know how to read or write would use a stencil as a means of signing legal documents. Um, in the 16th century, it was often used to create playing cards. But um, really... As a widespread technique, we really start to see it emerge in the 19th century, where it was used by Japanese artisans for creating um, and decorating housewares, fans, and kimono. So they were using it in textile design. Um, and so they really cultivated the Japanese, this technique, over, over several hundred years. And as a lot of imported goods from Japan became quite fashionable in Europe during the latter portion of the 19th century, um, it's around this time that European printers also kind of start to experiment with the technique, and they really refined it even further for the purposes of not printing on textiles, but book publishing. Um, 
and the technique of pushbar really sort of reached just apotheosis under the guidance and refinement of a gentleman whose name was Jean Sade. Um, to this day, Sade is really kind of considered the authority on the pushbar technique. And it, the reason for this is because how he thought about color um, was really quite advanced. So how the pushbar process um, worked was an artist or an illustrator would submit to Sade and his, his pushbar studio an original work on paper. And this was the original work that ultimately they wanted to reproduce in a book or an album or, um, you know, let's say a periodical. And the image would be really, really, really rigorously scrutinized for its color separations. Then a decoupeur or a cutter would create stencils, at least one stencil for each color appearing within an image. And oftentimes, um, because of the complexity of an image, there may be more than one stencil cut for the color red. Um, copper and zinc were pretty much the favorite materials used to create the physical stencil itself. And then once these were realized, they would be handed off to a colorist or colorist um, who would painstakingly and really, really rigorously giving care to the registration of the stencils. They would apply water-based pigments or gouache directly to the page to create the image. Um, the colorist had quite a variety of brushes and techniques that were available um, for their disposal in order to recreate as faithfully as possible the artist's original works. And this was really one of the aspects of, of Pushbar that was treasured. These images are essentially semi-unique works of art on paper. This was really labor-intensive. Um, and in turn, this made it very expensive to produce. And so at this level of kind of really refined level of pushbar, um, it was really only used for limited edition publications. And there was a certain cachet at the time surrounding its exclusivity. Luxury fashion publications especially embraced the technique really kind of as a foil to the easily reproduced nature of fashion photography. So it was kind of a reaction um, to the rise of fashion photography. People were returning back to the handmade. And it creates such stunning effects. That's sort it of, does. it's really beautiful, like the way things are layered together. And it, it, as you said, it's a complete art in and of itself. And what I think is interesting about illustration in general is that in some cases, particularly in fashion, these illustrations of historical fashions have really sort of become even more iconic than the clothing. And what jumped to mind mm -hmm. for me was uh, Paul Poiré, who we've talked about on the podcast, and Paul Erib. Uh, so for people who aren't especially into fashion and fashion history, they will sometimes recognize the sketches with some level of familiarity. But if you showed them a photograph of the garment, they're like, I don't know what that is. Um but the, so the in some ways the the imagery and the sketchwork has sort of superseded the clothing that it was meant to represent. Uh, do you think any of those illustrators, particularly in the early 1900s, ever really conceived of the possibility that their work would be the more enduring part of the equation rather than the clothing? They did. At least some of them did. And I'm saying yes, because depending on what publication that that particular artist or illustrator was working for, their work may have never 
actually existed in physical form in terms of it being a garment. Um, some of the garments we see in some of these illustrations were always intentionally purely the invention of the illustrator. And they were actually kind of meant to inspire the direction of fashion. So they weren't necessarily reflecting what current fashion was, but they were meant to inspire the future direction of fashion. Um, that being said, um, certain publications were also underwritten by some of the couture houses. Um, and if, if there was a couture house underwriting that publication, the publication usually featured illustrations of their designs, their underwriters, almost exclusively. Um, and this is the case in Gazette du Bonton. And Gazette du Bonton would um, pair specific illustrators with specific designers, and they would have an ongoing um, relationship for, for years at a time sometimes. Um, but some examples of the garments that we see and some of these illustrations still do exist in museum collections. Um, specifically, some of the Poiré dresses that are illustrated by Arib, um, those are still, there's excellent examples of them in French museum collections. And here at FIT, we actually have one of the coats that Arib illustrates for Les Robes de Poiré. Um, we have it in a different colorway. Um, in Arib's illustration, it's yellow, but the museum's collection um, example is in black. So it's a little bit of yes and a little bit of no, the answer to the question. Yes, sometimes sometimes they knew that, that their designs were only ever going to exist on the page, and, and sometimes they were also illustrating um, specific garments. Well, and it's interesting, too, uh, to think about, you know, clothing that gets worn, uh, even if it's only for a short time, it sort of s suffers its own use in some degree where, you know, textiles tend to break down. Paper has always sort of survived a little bit more. Uh, not always, but overall, I would say there, you know, we have more examples of art from various periods than we have the actual clothing that's intact. So it would make sense from that point of view. It just fascinates me that particularly with Paul Poiret, I mean, I remember when we were researching that episode, I would show people pictures of the dresses and they'd be like, I, what is this weird dress? I don't, I've never seen this. And I would show them an illustration of like the same or a very similar dress. And they're like, oh, I've seen that art. I'm like, I, I don't, how did that separation exist? <laughs> um, and one thing that's interesting, and, and you mentioned at the time that most of this art was sort of aspirational and sort of to drive the direction of the future of fashion, that, you know, now a, a separate artist doing fashion illustration for someone is much more unheard of. So as it's evolved away from that idea of partnerships between illustrators and clothing designers, uh, why do you think it actually started to do that, where now designers pretty much also have to be artists for the most part? Hmm. And, and, you know, here's the thing. It's a curious thing. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And I don't know that that partnership has necessarily dissolved as much as we think that it has. Um, historically, not all fashion designers have sketched before they created their collections. Um, this was not necessarily part of many of the great fashion designers of the past. Um, some designers even specifically employed sketch artists as part of their team to document their collections after the fact, um, rather than photograph them, because at certain periods of time, to photograph them would have been more expensive than to have a sketch artist on staff. Um, for instance, uh, Lucille, Lady Jeff Gordon, who I mentioned earlier, um, she actually had 
dedicated sketch artists as part of her team. And one of them happened to be Edward Molyneux, who, um, if you know a lot about the history of fashion, he actually went on to become a very, very famous fashion designer in his own right after kind of beginning his career working for Lucille. Um, but still to this day, I'm still bringing in fashion illustrations into our collection that are not necessarily executed by the head designers themselves, but other parties that are hired in um, to illustrate um, the production of a, of a specific specific house. Um, I think that there's kind of beginning to be sort of a resurgence of interest in fashion illustration um, as a reaction to all the photographs images that we're really bombarded with every single day. And it's an interesting time period because this really is kind of paralleling the interest in pochoir illustrations that was a counterpoint to the mass conversion to photography that we saw happen a century ago. I, I'm starting to see this happen again. Which is fascinating because we're right at about 100 years like mm-hmm. since this was taking place then. So it's very, very fascinating. I loved hearing the idea that fashion illustration existing separate from fashion design is something that's having a resurgence. It was also really interesting to hear about how illustrators of the early 1900s viewed their work in relation to the clothing designers they were collaborating with. Yeah, I was surprised by that. Uh, so next up, the conversation is going to turn to a little bit more general talk about fashion in the context of cultural history. But first, we're going to have a word from one of our fabulous sponsors. Okay, next, April will talk about uh, fashion in a cultural context. And then they will wrap up, she and Holly, uh, with some advice about how other people interested in fashion history might start out if they are wanting to learn more. You mentioned earlier in our discussion that you really love the idea of objects and gleaning from them sort of their their meaning and their context historically. So I'm curious what you think fashion can really teach us about the culture and time that it comes from. Because we approach it, how should we be looking at it to really interpret the period that it existed in in a contemporary way? Sure. So I think one of the things that I first realized when I really started studying fashion, and some of this is a little bit school, the obvious, but but how inextricably tied fashion is to not only capitalism, um, but also the passage of time. Um, in, in, the, in the Fashion Place book, I, I, I use this little analogy that admittedly is perhaps um, on the verge of waxing a little bit poetic, but I like this analogy. Um, I wrote something to the effect that um, fashion is not only the devoted mistress of capitalism, constantly cannibalizing itself and, and, and because of that calling for a rapid infusion of the new. Um, but fashion is also concurrently the fickle wife of father time. You know, fashion is always betraying his every movement with her incessant remakeover of, of the physical world. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that fashion, whether it be fashion in clothes, in colors, home goods, trends in food, or even like the apps that are on your phone, all of these things have a very specific place in this broader fashion system. And our consumption of these things is really directly connected to our personal politics vis-a-vis how we decide to to vote for the creation of goods um, that come into being via our exchange of monetary currency for those things, right? We're voting with our dollar when we buy things. 
Um, so an, another another thing I think that we can learn from about just looking at fashion is you can always end up learning something about the technology of the period um, because ultimately how things look um, is one of the factors that goes into how things look is always going to be the technology that was behind its creation. Um, for instance, the invention of synthetic dyes in in um, really changed the color palette of the 19th, late 19th century. And, and to me, this is kind of akin to what I think may happen very shortly here in terms of how 3D printing may very well re- revolutionize um, the, how we produce fashion in the coming years. So cool. Um, I'm literally still paging through your book while we talk, and I just keep finding myself <laughs> sighing and gasping, um, which makes me wonder, because I'm, of course, I keep flipping to the late Victor- late bustle part of the Victorian era. Uh, what is your favorite historical period in fashion? You were exposed to all of it all the time, so surely you must have a favorite. I do, but you know what that <laughs> favorite is? It shifts over time. Oh, right. And I kind of find that, I find that, question often depends on what I'm working on at the moment. And if I had to answer that question right now, I would definitely say that the 19 teens are at the top of my list. But I also realize that that probably has a lot to do with the fact that I've been working in that time period recently. Um, But one of the things that I love about the teens is that it's a really, truly a pivotal point, both in the history of fashion itself and also fashion illustration. Um, this is a time period when we start to see the corset disappear and the corset, corset had dominated women's fashion and in some degrees men's fashion too in certain small segments um, for 400 years. Um, and it's also a really pivotal point in, in um, how fashion illustration changes um, with that collaboration that you referenced earlier between uh, Poiret and Arib. But um, one of the other, my other interests uh, in uh, the teens is the fact that I, as a fashion historian, one of my specific um, interests is in the intersection of war and fashion. So the French Revolution, World War One, World War Two. Um, And I feel very drawn to these questions around those time periods. It's like, how is it that a specific society navigates the exigencies of war um, with the same time having the very real need to put clothes on human bodies, but also the economic imperatives of the fashion industry in terms of keeping people employed and feeding their families during these very difficult periods. And I think that... um, the argument that fashion is frivolous during periods of war begins to melt away just a little bit, just a little bit, that when you realize that, for instance, during World War One, approximately 30% of France's labor force was tethered in one way or another to the fashion industry. Um, at that time, France was the global arbiter of style, so it wasn't only the job's of, let's say, couture house workers that were at stake during World War One, but it was also the entire textile industry, including dye manufacturers and all of these little offshoot industries such as lace makers, embroiderers, um, people who worked in the feather industries, furs, millinery, the list, the list goes on. So when you think about these intersections of wars, war and fashion, it's, it's, it's not only an aesthetic um, choice that's happening, that there's an economic imperative behind it. I love it. I have to wonder, do you ever do any uh, historical costuming? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible fashion historian. I don't oh. even know how to sew. What? <laughs> 
No, that do- that doesn't seem terrible at all to me. I'm always a little bit just because of my own like life context when someone says, particularly someone who is in interested in in fashion or whatever says they don't sew. It seems so bizarre to me, um, even though it's not. But it's just because I've mm-hmm. always been a stitcher my whole life. Like I started when I was very very tiny. So I'm like, of course you sew. Everybody sew. Nobody sews. Okay. <laughs> Um, but that's just my own context that makes that seem weird. But no, I, I certainly know lots of people that are into fashion and don't sew, but I, part of it for me is the drive. Like I want that. Mm-hmm. So I have to figure out how to make it. Um, oh, there are plenty of times when I look at a fashion plate and was like, if I knew how to sew, I would be wearing that to work tomorrow. Oh, well, <laughs> what's really, really fascinating to me, um, going back and occasionally looking at historical patterns, I don't know how much pattern gazing you do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so fascinating because particularly, and again, I'll admit Victorian is my favorite zone, but you'll look at these garments and particularly in fashion plates and be like, how on earth did they ever do that? And then I'm always sort of amazed at the beautiful simplicity of engineering that usually goes into them. Where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is not a hard thing to cut out at all. It has weird seams that aren't like in the places we would do modern garments, but it's usually so smart and so much more simple than one would anticipate, yet it creates these incredible, beautiful drapes and, and shapes. And I'm always very wowed by this, the brilliance of the architecture a lot of times of historical garments. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so I know we have a lot of listeners that are into fashion and maybe don't mm-hmm. uh, know quite where to get started looking into it. What would you recommend as a good starting point for someone who wants to start looking into fashion history, either for themselves or even as a potential education and career path? Sure. Well, um, there's not only been an explosion of publishing on fashion studies, not only fashion history, but also fashion theory in the last decade. And um, hand in hand with that, an explosion of programs where you can actually go study fashion from a scholarly perspective. Um, Here in New York, at least, um, there's a program at NYU. There's a program at Parsons. We have a graduate program here at FIT. Those are just three in New York. Um, There's many programs um, abroad in Europe, in London. Um, But in terms of books, books, of course, would be the easiest way to kind of get your feet wet. And I mentioned earlier the book that I kind of led me to being a fashion historian, and you have a copy yourself, um, which is the Kyoto Costume Institute catalog. I think technically the name of it is something like fashion, a history from the 18th to 20th century, something like that. Um, yeah, and I know I have the um, the paperback version, which is two volumes, mm-hmm. like it was mm-hmm. two volumes in a box set, so, and I think that got a rename possibly. So we'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Um, There's another great book that's a fantastic overview of fashion history that just came out, uh, I think, in October. It's called uh, The History of Modern Fashion, and it's by Daniel um, Cole and Nancy Deal. And it covers fashion from the birth of haute couture in the 1850s um, all the way into the 21st century. So it's a pretty wide-spanning book. Um, Those those would be two of my top picks for just like a a very uh, smart but easy overview of a lot of time. Uh, well, in the Kyoto one, I, I know for sure, like, it's an easy entry because you'll first just sit there slack jawed at all the gorgeous photography for a while, and then exactly. you'll start reading the notes. <laughs> that book actually was um, a part uh, the structure of it was a little bit of my inspiration for how I set up 
the Fashion Place book. Um, you have it there in front of you, so you already know this, but I didn't write text-heavy chapters. Um, I really wanted a lot of people um, coming from lots of different um, backgrounds or with a lot of different interests to be able to access the book on whatever level that they wanted. So I didn't want to do these text-heavy chapters. Instead, I kind of did vignettes. And so an image, um, the fashion plate itself, will be on one page, and facing that will be sort of like contextualizing text um, that may be about the history of fashion that's portrayed in the fashion plate. It may be about the social political um, climate of that particular era. It may be about art history or technology of the period that's kind of evidencing its hand within the fashion plate. Um, but these things are really of utmost importance to me um, when when trying to understand what fashion's true relevance is within any given era. It's much broader than just the clothes themselves. It's all these other things surrounding it that go into its creation. And I would actually add your Fashion Plates book particularly to a, a good starter point because, as you said, it's so... Um it's laid out in such a way that it's kind of easy to digest it in whatever manner you desire. But it's kind of one of those things where even if you start looking at the pictures, when it first came, uh, one of my colleagues, Julie Douglas, who works on other podcasts and projects here at House of Works, she uh, is into fashion, but is not really into fashion history so much. Uh, she just hasn't been exposed to it. And we're sitting there paging through it and gasping at the loveliness. And then she would, we would be gazing at a picture and then she would finally, I would see her kind of drifting over to the text side and be like, oh, now I understand. And so, <laughs> so it's sort of a, it really is a beautiful kind of, uh, a way to introduce people to some of the the context socially, particularly that otherwise you may miss just looking at the gorgeous pictures. So thank you for oh, that. Well, thank you so much for really saying that lovely. because that was exactly my intent. Hooray! <laughs> success! Oh, April, thank you so much for being with us. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time and also just getting to chat with you about fashion history. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure and I hope you enjoy the book more. Oh, I'm sure I will. I, uh, I am going to take it home from the office now that we're done with this and then I can truly devour it uh, in my own time. And I I, again, I super love it and really would recommend it to anybody who uh, is into fashion. The holidays are over, but it would make a spectacular gift for anybody. If you're late or if there's a birthday coming, do that. Uh, and otherwise, uh, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you online? Um, I do have a blog that I wrote right as part of um, my job here at FIT, which is called Material Mode. Um, and you can just search Google search blog material mode FIT and I'm sure it'll come up. Um, and then you can also follow us on Instagram. We have a fantastic Instagram feed, which we post really cool things from the collection every day, five days a week. Um, and you can follow us at FIT special collections on Instagram. And I am now following you. Uh, <laughs> um, excellent. Well, thank you so, so much. And we uh, hopefully we'll talk to you next time you have a book out. Thanks. I would love to. Most excellent. So that was the amazing April Callahan. Uh, her books, once again, if you want to check them out, and if you're into fashion history at all, you do want to check them out, are uh, Fashion Plates, 150 Years of Style, and the other one is Fashion and the Art of Pochoir, The Golden Age of Illustration in Paris. And I am not joking at all when I talk about how gorgeous these books are. Like, I may sound like I'm overblowing it. I'm not. They're absolutely spectacular. And I am so delighted that April shared some of her fashion history knowledge with us.
Holly, do you also have some listener mail? I do. Uh, and since we have just wrapped up the holidays and we re- recorded, we kind of front loaded a lot of episodes going into the holidays so that you could take some time off. And I took some time off of recording, but I was working on scripts and stuff. So uh we had a lot of like really great holiday mail coming to the office, but we didn't get to shout it out during the holidays. So I wanted to do a few of those now. Uh, one of these, we mentioned them last year, this wonderful couple, Zach and Paloma, who are delights. I just, I adore these people. Uh, they, they do these really fun, kooky photoshops for their cards. And this year, uh, they have several pictures of them and their cats, but they have switched the heads on their cats to be them and vice versa. So it's very funny because they did a very good job of it. And then there's one on the back where they have just switched each other's heads. And it's so cute. Uh, and I love that they include us in their card list because this is one that I just smile like crazy when it came in. And then uh, I shared it around the office. Caroline from Stuff Mom Never Told You. And I giggled over this for probably a good 10 minutes. Uh, another one uh, that I wanted to shout out to you was... Um, Our listener, Fergal from Ireland, who I shared the image of his wonderful gift that he sent us on uh, social. But in case anybody wasn't looking at that, uh, Fergal sent us these beautiful mugs from Ireland. And it was so nice. Uh, He lives in the Hill of Tara in County Meath, which is seat of the former High Kings of Ireland and home to Maguire's Cafe and Gift Shop. And they really, in his opinion, deserve a call out if possible. Uh, so he got us these fabulous mugs to kind of make mention of them. So uh, we appreciate it. I love it. I'm using mine frequently here at the office. I really appreciate it. Fergal, that was so kind to send that all the way across the pond for us. Uh, we also got a wonderful, uh, card. And I, I won't read the whole thing and I can't give you the person's name because they only signed it with their initials and they didn't put a return address, but it's a beautiful card featuring two puffins with some uh, lovely Christmas lights. And this listener talks about how they have historically had a little bit of a problem listening to people speak extemporaneously, but how like they're kind of working through it. And our podcast has been part of that. So I really appreciate it. I know there could be moments where you cringe listening to people talk. I do sometimes. That's fine. Uh, so I super appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, the other shout out that I want to give is another repeat from last year. But Nicole from yearofthecalendar.com once again sent us gorgeous, fabulous planners. And as everyone knows, I'm a planner just. I'm already so excited for my 2016 planner. Uh, It's so kind and generous when people send us stuff like this. I just I really cannot convey enough how much I appreciate just the fact that someone thinks of us and wants to share part of their world with us. And in cases like Nicole's part of their, you know, art, it's fabulous. So thank you so much to everybody. I know there were other people that sent us great cards uh, and gifts and we as we always sort of lament, we don't have time to list or talk about all of them, but I, I am so appreciative. It is super awesome. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also reach us at facebook.com slash missed in history on Twitter at missed in history at pinterest.com slash missed in history at missed in history.tumblr.com and on Instagram at missed in history. If you would like to learn a little bit more about today's topic, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in the words fashion history, and one of the really cool things that comes up is actually a gallery called the Changing Tides of Fashion. It kind of looks at different moments in fashion throughout the years. Uh, if you would like to visit us, you can do that at mistinhistory.com. 
And there you will find show notes for all of the episodes since uh, Tracy and I have been working on the podcast, as well as all of the archived episodes with all of the hosts that preceded us. And so once again, come and visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 